This episode is brought to you with the support of one of our very favorite small family-owned businesses, which is prettylittelightcandleco.com. Lauren started this business with her daughter as a homeschool project. So it started out as a project, turned into a family business that was just like a small business um, selling to people local that turned into a larger family business and ministry. They really do put ministry first in everything they do, and they make excellent candles. Rita and I are extremely picky about what we will have in our house, including the candles that we burn. And Lauren actually helped educate us on why these candles are good. These are safe burning fragrances, safer than using essential oils, phthalate free. These are the kind of candles that you can feel comfortable having in your home, giving as gifts to anyone in your life, whether it's your mother or mother-in-law, your friends, your sisters, anything like that. They also do fundraising opportunities. You know how kids can sell candy bars and stuff. Well, you can also do that with pretty little light candles. So you can contact them and look into that option if you have a school or a sports team or something like that. So prettylittelightcandleco.com. Enter the code BOOMCLAP to save on your order. Welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. We have an amazing episode for you today. We have a really incredible interview with a man named Herb Garrity. We are talking in this episode about the importance of life. We're talking about abortion. And I know that you are really going to appreciate Herb's unique perspective on this. Um, But before we get into that interview, I just want to take a minute to thank those of you who have been leaving us reviews. We are so thankful each and every time a new review comes through. We've gotten a couple great ones this past week. And if you're on the fence and have kind of been thinking about leaving a review, but it's not really your thing and you're not really sure if you should, Take this as a sign that you should know that it makes our day. And not only that, but it really helps us reach new listeners, which is really important with a podcast. So here's a couple that we've received recently. One says, boom, clap, talks, important topics. I've been listening to Cecily and Rita since the beginning and have loved the deep content of the episodes. I love how they talk about the hard things and always bring it back to God's sovereignty. I'm finally now leaving a review after listening to the them before us episode. It was so incredibly important. I feel truly armed to defend children's rights after learning more about natural rights that align with God's word. Thank you. That one was really, really sweet. We enjoyed reading that. Another one says, they never miss. I just finished the World Split Apart episode and I rewound multiple parts to better focus on both of their brilliant points. They broke his speech down so concisely and eloquently, an incredible skill to have. I'm grateful to soak up some of their grace and wisdom. This is my pod. You ladies never miss a beat and I never miss an episode. That is amazing. Thank you so much for doing that. Like I said, it really helps us. It really helps the podcast. So thank you. If you haven't done that, go ahead and go to Apple Podcasts. If you don't want to write anything down, you can just click the five stars. But if you do want to write something down, we would really appreciate that as well. If you're looking for us outside of the podcast, or if you're just wanting a little more interaction with our community, with us, or you want to dig a little bit deeper, then you need to check out the boomclapcommunity.com. This is a community that you can join for as little as $2 a month just to support the work that we do at the podcast, because there are expenses that come along with running a podcast, especially as it grows. So it helps us to be able to actually afford to continue the podcast. It also um, just creates opportunity for community. We have monthly live meetings with you all where we talk about the things that you want to talk about, where we dig deeper on the episodes. We do um, quarterly literary discussions where we go through different books. And we also do a weekly roundup where we send out a detailed email 
with really detailed show notes, additional video links or article links, things that we think are really important, but we couldn't get to in the podcast, things like that. So those are the, some, some of the reasons you might want to check out the boomclapcommunity.com. And again, if you've been thinking about that, maybe this is your time to do that. Okay, now that we've gotten some of that housekeeping stuff out of the way, I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest today. Like I said, his name is Herb Garrity. He is the executive director of Rehumanize International. So I'm just going to read actually his bio from the website because I thought it gave a really good picture of who he is. So it says, Herb first joined the Rehumanize team back in 2016 as a summer intern while studying rhetoric and politics at the University of Pittsburgh and has been working in some capacity for the organization since then. When our founder stepped down in 2020, the board of directors chose Herb to fill the role of executive director. Throughout the years, Herb's unique position as a politically independent pro-life atheist has broken down barriers to reach demographics often untapped by the mainstream pro-life movement. Similarly, Herb's common ground on the abortion issue with many folks on the political right has enabled productive outreach on the issues of war, torture, and the death penalty. Herb is a passionate and engaging advocate for the consistent life ethic who has a passion for building bridges and finding common ground with people across the political spectrum to call everyone to a greater consistency in the fight for human rights. So that is about Herb. So he was so pleasant to talk to. We had a great conversation. And what I loved about this conversation is that we do come from different worldviews. We come from different perspectives, but we are in this fight together, this fight for for life. And Herb wasn't always pro-life. He actually started out pro-choice and he thought that that's where he fell on that issue. But what changed that for him was research. And he had an open mind and he allowed himself to follow the evidence. And I really appreciate that about him. I appreciate that about any person that is willing to have an open mind, not just stay so staunchly on their quote side that they can't see their way to truth. So really respect her for that. And I think it's a lesson for all of us, right? Research, while it can seem cumbersome and not fun for a lot of people, It's important, right? Especially in this world that seems to be growing increasingly complex, we can't kind of just mail it in, right? We have to be willing to do the work. And Herb's a great example of that. And I loved having this conversation because while a lot of our guests, we don't agree with everything, of course, um, there's there's usually kind of like an 80 to 90% common ground type situation, which it probably isn't the case with Herb. Like, We could be great friends with him, but we don't necessarily agree on a lot of stuff. So it was really, really refreshing to have different perspective brought to this podcast. And I think that you guys will feel that as well. So without further ado, here is our interview with Herb Garrity. Hi, Herb. We are so glad to have you on with us today uh, just to talk about what you're facing um, with being indicted and then also... One thing that as I was looking through information about you that came up, because we're going to talk about abortion, obviously, that's the main topic, but you also talk about uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide. And that's something we've talked about on our podcast with Maid, um, because Cecily's from Canada, and that's a big deal there, and it's probably going to eventually be coming here. So interested to talk to you about that too. But just before we get started, I want to highlight the fact that 
we come from different backgrounds where we don't necessarily agree on everything. And I was telling you before we hopped on that I was so excited to talk to you because we don't agree on everything. And I think often we can learn the most, even if there are things we agree on, because we didn't get on here to debate today or talk about the things we don't agree on. We got on here to talk about, you know, the, the euthanasia and abortion and what you're facing and the things we do agree upon. But even though we do agree upon those things, we came to those conclusions from um, very different uh, perspectives and backgrounds. And so I think so many times we can learn so much from people who have different viewpoints than us. And yesterday, my children, our, our lesson was on uh, opposing views, opposing views and inquiring minds. So I think that was really interesting and timely. And I'm happy to talk to you today. Great. Well, thank you. Sorry. I never know. Um, it's hard when we're not in person totally. to respond because I'm always like, is there is someone else going to say something? <laughs> Do I have a lag and I don't want to talk over anyone? But thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So can you tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background, and then what you do? Sure. So my name is Herb. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, the work that I do, um, I work with a couple different pro-life, human rights, social justice groups. Um, but my main my main work is through Rehumanize International, where I am the executive director. And that is an organization, um, it's a nonprofit, uh, but it, it's secular and nonpartisan um, uh, human rights organizing. Um, we adhere to something called the consistent life ethic, which means opposing violence against human beings at all stages of their life and in all circumstances. And so in practice, that means that we work to abolish abortion, capital punishment, embryo destruction, euthanasia and assisted suicide, torture, police brutality, and war. Um, we sort of pick those issues because they're all issues of aggressive violence against human beings that are also either state-sanctioned or people are trying to make them legal and state-sanctioned. Um, usually in the United States, but also generally in the West and other places that we have um, our supporters and we have reach. So that's kind of the work that uh, I do on the day-to-day. -day. And then we we have a whole bunch of different programs. We have um, a uh, we have a magazine that we publish and we have an annual conference and we do speaking events and we, um, we do a whole bunch of different stuff and we organize protests and rallies and lots of different stuff. We also have chapters in five cities where they go and they go and do outreach and volunteerism, um, but all with the idea that we exist to promote human rights for all human beings, regardless of circumstance. Um, and so that's like my day-to-day -day work. And then I also have been involved in other pro-life groups. I'm on the board of both Anti, uh, progressive anti-abortion uprising, as well as the pro-life alliance of gays and lesbians, um, and I also am just I'm just all around all of the different um, non-traditional pro-life groups. I've worked with secular pro-life. Um, I used to be involved in Democrats for Life. Uh, I sort of where, wherever you find the like non-traditional kind of different pro-lifers who aren't necessarily your you know, National Right to Life or Americans United for Life, um, though I'm a fan of those organizations as well. Um, but my home has always been in the kind of secular, um, more liberal and consistent life ethic crowd within the pro-life movement. Yeah, I think it's really good for people to hear, especially the people that probably listen to our, our podcast. They're probably way more familiar with the traditional pro-life people, right? And so it's really good to hear that there are, um, what did you call it? Um 
non-traditional, non-traditional yeah. pro-life groups as well. And really we should be linking arms because the message is so much stronger, right? When it's people of different backgrounds, different belief systems coming together to fight that same fight, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that it it's necessary both because we just... It, this is urgent. Mm-hmm. Children are literally being oh. murdered. This is something that we need to be um, coordinating with as many people as possible. Uh, and we just need all different types of people um, just because of how massive the scale of the injustice is. Um, but we've also found that it's only through working with people like me and people who have other backgrounds that I don't share, like people of color and people who are uh, from immigrant communities. It's only through working with people who have that diverse set of experiences do we have any chance of reaching people with diverse sets of experiences. Like I cannot tell you how many times I've had the opportunity to talk to people about abortion, people who are pro-choice or on the fence, and they've told me straight up to my face, like, if I thought you were just another one of those hypocritical Trump-supporting Republicans, I wouldn't have listened to you. Um, And I think that that's like unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I wish that people were able to kind of put aside their biases. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've found that even just, you know, people, when you you hold a pro-life sign, people are going to scream in your face all of these assumptions that they might have about you. Um, And I think even me just saying like, oh, actually, I'm not religious. You're the one who brought up religion. Um, Causes people to stop and think about the issue really for the first time. Because if all you've been told about abortion is that it's a women's right, her body, her choice, um, no uterus, no opinion, uh, keep your rosaries off your ovaries. Like it's a lot of these like thought terminating cliches that are needed in order to justify the horror of abortion. And so when you just drill in as many talking points and um, like snippets of of an argument that is not really fleshed out, people drill that into their heads and they haven't ever really considered the pro-life position because they see it as just, this is a religious thing, it's a right-wing thing, Mm -hmm. it's not about human rights, it's about denying human rights Mm -hmm. to women and people who can get pregnant. Um, And that's not the case. The the pro-life movement is a movement for human rights protections. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that my work that I've got to do with all different types of people, especially um, secular people who are not religious or who are of minority religions. Um, I, I feel like that work has been so important and we've been able to make an impact that, you know, the the, the Trump supporting Republicans who are also in the movement, and I'm glad they're mm-hmm. around, but um, people are just not willing to listen to them once they, once they understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is a good point. Like there, there needs to be people of all backgrounds fighting this fight. And one thing that I want to pull out that you talked about is um, human rights, right? So from our perspective, we are anti-abortion because of human rights. But then of course, the people that are pro-choice also say it's for human rights. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Like, isn't it so interesting that we use the same term human rights, but have such vastly different ideas um, about what that is? What do you, what do you think about that? So I think that the fact that most supporters of abortion see it as a human rights issue or a women's rights issue, I I think that that's actually sort of a good sign. Um, like I think that pro-lifers sort of do a disservice to ourselves when and the movement when we think of abortion supporters as people who are just 
callous and they don't care about babies and they, um, they're all right with this extreme violence, which they are. However, when you talk to pro-choice people or people who are on the fence, no one is like, well, I'm fine with killing babies. There's a couple of like radical extremists who call themselves pro-abortion. Um, and they are unfortunately leading a lot of the activist mm -hmm. movements. But the vast majority of Americans are pretty undecided on abortion. They're kind of somewhere in the middle. They think that maybe abortion should be acceptable, um, similar to uh, many European countries, up until 12 weeks. And then after that, you need to have a really good reason. And the really good reasons are usually just you know, the child is disabled or the woman is experiencing some sort of, um, you know, hardship. But uh, ultimately, the fact that people who support abortion overwhelmingly think that they're standing for human rights, I think, gives us an opportunity to reach them and explain to them not that they need to change their worldview, they need to change their, uh, you know, their entire political ideology and become conservative Christians mm -hmm. who believe in all the same things that conservative Christians might believe in. What I try to tell to people is like, you don't need to change how you feel about any other issue other than abortion, because it is very unlikely that your stance on abortion aligns with your other values, especially people who are liberal or consider themselves feminist, like people who believe in equality or believe in nonviolence. Supporting abortion is inherently opposed to those ideas. And that's how they develop their other political positions. And so I think it's through educating and showing the truth of both what abortion looks like and also just the very basics of embryology and early human development. I have spoken to so many pro-choice people who really have this idea that until 20, 24 weeks, like there is a spherical blob of right. cells that totally is unresembles a human being. Um, and certainly at those very early stages when we're talking about actual embryos and blastocysts, like they are tiny and they really do look like clumps of cells despite us knowing biologically that they are human beings. But I have found that so many people who think that they support things like the abortion pill because it only works up until a certain a certain week or they only think that you know uh, up until 10 weeks there's really nothing in there just showing them like not gory images just images of what unborn children look like at the stage they think it should be legal to kill them at and i have spoken to so many people who have shifted their position maybe not 100% pro life all the way but at least oppose abortion after a heartbeat is detected which we know is incredibly early and so I think that, um, I think it's, it, it you want to roll your eyes when they say like abortion is a right, when we know that it is actually a violation of human rights. It's, it, it's sort of ridiculous to think of it that way. But I think the only reason they're able to frame it as a right is because they've successfully not just dehumanized the unborn, but completely invisibilized yeah. them. They are not even part of the consideration if there is a moral consideration about abortion. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. Like, I don't think these are bad people. I think these are people that have been conditioned to believe something that's not true, right? That's what it is. And so, yeah, I think you're spot on. It's just education because really it's education that's taken them to this belief system and it's proper education that will hopefully bring them back from that, right? Yeah. And that's also a big part of the work that I do with Rehumanize, trying to have these 
conversations about like basic biological facts, right? And trying to move past some of the like extreme polarization that these issues just inherently come come with. Um, and just try to say like, take a step back and think about how you really, how you think about this. You don't have to come out of this conversation totally agreeing with me, but question whether or not you might have some disagreements. And I think that it's through this work that I've been doing through looking at these issues as interconnected, all issues of aggressive violence, it's made me, I think, be able to talk to people from different perspectives it, much more effectively because I think that, you know, I, I think that we all have our own beliefs, right? Like, for example, I'm against the death penalty. I've always been against the death penalty. I really didn't have to question it much. Um, and I kind of had a hard time empathizing with people who supported the death penalty. I thought I was like, so what? You're just fine with violence and murder? What's wrong with you? Um, but because I ended up being so active in the pro-life movement, I worked with a lot of people who are conservative. And as a result, they uh, they support the death penalty. Um, and I've been able to really understand why they believe the things they do. I still think they're wrong. I still think that we need to have a conversation about criminal justice reform and not simply um, retributive justice. However, I'm able to talk to them and understand where they're coming from in a way that I wasn't able to before I started doing this work. And I think the same thing is often true of pro-life people where we look at pro-choice people and we know what abortion looks like. So we are horrified that they support that. And it's hard for us to even find any amount of common ground. And so that's what we work on. We try to find some amount of common ground. And sometimes it's, hey, look, we're we're also mad about Donald Trump's immigration policies. Or we're also like, we're holding hands with you at the Black Lives Matter rally. You should you can tell that we genuinely are concerned about human rights. And this is not an issue of trying to punish women or trying to impose religion, because you know that's not what we're about. You've seen us at active on these other issues you care about. And so hear us out on abortion. And we have found that we have reached so many more people than when I was simply working with kind of conservative anti-abortion groups and just trying to target as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I really think um, the way that you described, you know, learning from and not necessarily agreeing with, but at least understanding and listening to that conservative point of view about the death penalty. I think people on both sides of the aisle could definitely learn about that. It's unfortunately not something we see a whole lot of these days. Yeah. Well, if you want to change a mind, a lot of times the best way is to understand Mm -hmm. where that person's coming from also. And I I think that there's a lot of that lacking. So um, can you tell us, okay, first, Contrast the way you were treated as a nonviolent pro-life activist versus a pro-abortion activist, and then get into a little bit of this indictment. So you were indicted on the freedom of freedom of access to clinic interests. Sorry, freedom of access to clinic entrances act. That's hard to say for some reason. It's kind of a tongue twister. It's the face face act, act, but I at least wanted to get out what the words are because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the face act was prior to um, looking into this. So I wanted to at least get out for our listeners exactly what that is. So it's basically obstructing an entrance to a clinic and obstructing someone from going in. So you were indicted on that. Can you tell us like how and why that happened? And then just kind of contrast how you're treated versus somebody who as somebody who's nonviolent, you know, protesting and helping women outside the clinic versus somebody who is pro-abortion and potentially, uh, 
not always coming at it with the most uh, caring manner. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So before I talk about the indictment, um, because there's been, I think there's been a lot of history of the anti-abortion movement that has been erased and has been ignored for a while. Um, so a lot of people don't know about the the roots of the pro-life movement and our this movement's commitment to radical solidarity with the unborn through civil disobedience. Back in as early as um, the 70s, um, there were individuals, um, many were, were started by John Kavanaugh O'Keefe, who was like, he came out of the anti-Vietnam protest movement, and that's where he was able to bring that energy. Um, and he sort of invented this idea of using your body to physically, um, nonviolently, but to use your body to physically intervene in this life or death situation, not just advocating outside the doors or um, doing, you know, political outreach or legislative change, saving a particular baby on a particular day who is scheduled to die. Um, and so there in the 70s and early 80s, there was kind of a few different um, groups who would go out and they would sit in front of the clinic doors or they would go into the clinic and they would wait until the police came and arrested them all. Um, and a lot of these early people were people who actually, um, including Joan Andrews Bell, who is actually one of my co-defendants in this case. Um, but a lot of these people are people who were around in the 60s and were doing almost the same thing during the civil rights movement. They were participating in nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, and they brought what they learned from those movements, both civil rights um, and anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, to the pro-life community and said, this is just as serious as those other issues. If we want to save lives and be taken seriously as a human rights movement, we need to follow the science of social justice. And we've seen that throughout history, um, whether it's if you want to look at almost any movement that advanced change for a marginalized group, whether it was um, the suffragist or the civil rights movement or really any, um, any, any movement for human rights, they all at some point imply, uh, em employed the tactic of civil disobedience. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways to do that. I've actually been arrested before um, protesting the death penalty and um, other, other, other stuff like that too. Um, but with abortion, the I think the the thing that was different is that it wasn't just a symbolic protest. It wasn't just we're against this, so we're protesting and risking arrest. It's that every minute you're either blocking a clinic door or inside that clinic and they're not performing abortions because there's a, there's a disruption going on. Babies are not dying. Actual human beings have a second chance at life. All of the children and their mothers who are in that clinic were not stopped by a sidewalk advocate outside. They went in and they were going to be killed unless people either blocked the doors or remained in the clinic until they were arrested to prevent the killing to continue. Um, and so that happened in like the, the late 60s, early 70s and 80s. Um, and then from 89 to 91, this movement, nonviolent civil disobedience um, in the pro-life movement, really expanded um, thanks to the work of Operation Rescue, who organized hundreds of thousands of people to go out and do this, to get arrested for the unborn, to physically prevent abortions from happening and children from being killed through nonviolent, basically passive 
resistance to injustice. Um, and then, unfortunately, they were really successful. Well, fortunately, they were really successful. They shut down so many clinics over, um, I think it's something like 700,000 like arrests total over like a three or four year period. Um, wow. Just an extreme amount of commitment and sacrifice that was uh, being willing to to happen for the unborn. Um, but because of the success of Operation Rescue, the Clinton administration passed uh, the FACE Act, which took it from uh, what would typically be a trespassing charge. Maybe, maybe you're uh, blocking ingress and egress and that's a, a different charge or um, or something else. But what, what basically turned into what every other form of civil disobedience, regular um, protest that's basically trespassing at worst. Um, maybe you get a slap on the wrist the first time, then maybe a couple days in jail or a couple weeks in jail if you keep doing it. Um, they took it from what protesting or civil disobedience in any other circumstance would result in and made it a federal crime um, that carries up to, uh, I, I think you can actually get life for it depending on cer certain circumstances. But I've been charged with up to a year in prison for uh, for allegedly violating the FACE Act and um, 10 years in addition to that for conspiring to violate the FACE Act, allegedly. Um, so I'm facing in total 11 years as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of fines um, because I have been involved in um, the, the pro-life movement and the revival of rescue, the idea of using your body nonviolently to stop a killer from harming their victim. Um, and also while we while, while people have done these events, um, we're also handing out literature, um, roses normally when it's a red rose rescue um, or pink rose rescue. And we, uh, we're providing these resources that typically pro-life people already know about. We know about Option Line and we know about Let Them Live and all, the, all, all, all different types of local services that exist to um, make it easier for people to choose life, um, make it, eliminate some of those barriers, whether it's housing or access to healthcare or whatever it is that a pregnant person needs to be able to feel as though they can continue this pregnancy without needing an abortion. Um, we also provide that um, to the women and are offering whatever whatever it is that it could possibly be um, that would change their mind, we want to help as much as possible so that they feel empowered to make that that choice for life. Um, and so the the charges themselves relate to um, an event that happened in October of 2020 uh, where um, there was there was a rescue. I can't talk exactly about how much um, I've been I, I what exactly happened that day or what led up to it um, because it's still pending litigation. Mm -hmm. But um, but basically what myself and my co-defendants are accused of is putting our bodies between the oppressor and the oppressed um, and not, not moving um, despite uh, threats of, of arrest. Um, and as a result, we've been charged with the FACE Act. But to answer your question more directly, how have we been treated compared to others? It's, it's totally... Um, it, it's clear to me that it is a political persecution, that this is something that, again, is mm -hmm. in any other building, this would be trespassing. Mm -hmm. But because of, because of the fact that they kill babies, and apparently that is a 
protected class, baby killing is a protected class that the federal government needs to get involved in, um, they uh, they are able to charge us with this extreme sentences um, that uh, that I think is just totally ridiculous because I think many people remember that after the Roe v. Wade decision got overturned this past summer, clinics, uh, pro-life pregnancy centers and clinics, as well as churches and other places, pro-life advocacy organizations were literally firebombed. Like there was constant vandalism and um, various acts of violence and aggression against pro-life centers. Um, And I believe that throughout the entire history of the FACE Act, um, no no pro-abortion person has been convicted um, under under the FACE Act, but lots of pro-life people have been charged and convicted um, for things like potentially blocking a clinic door or accidentally, in the case of um, Mark Huck, who recently had his trial and he thankfully was acquitted, um, but they were charging him with the FACE Act by for bumping into a clinic escort who had threatened his son, um, like his minor son, he mm-hmm. he pushed him a little bit away, bumped him away because he was threatening his child. Mm-hmm. And then he was charged with the freedom to access clinic entrances. And it's it, it's pretty apparent that, because and there's also been plenty of other charges. There's multiple ongoing cases against um, pro-life activists right now that um, a lot of people have been asking, including members of Congress have been asking what 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 are your priorities? Why are you only charging pro-life people with this act when it also covers pregnancy centers and churches and um, other uh, other uh, facilities that have been targeted? And thus far, there's only been two people charged, two pro-abortion people charged with violating it. Um, and that that only came after we had people like Representative Chip, uh, Chip Roy and Senator Ted Cruz ask Merrick Garland and start referring to the Department of Justice and FBI um, their questions about why this is only targeting pro-lifers. And then they were like, fine, we'll charge two pro-abortion people too. So now we can't yeah. even say that anymore. Um, but it's still totally out, outsized um, aggression against pro-lifers. Um, and it's just, I, I always try to... Right now, the judge is actually considering dismissing the case. Um, we we have made the argument, our attorneys have made the argument that actually the FACE Act itself is unconstitutional. First of all, there's no constitutional right to an abortion. Mm-hmm. That was made clear in Dobbs. Um, but also, it just does not make sense from a federalist perspective why the federal government should be legislating the this type of activity, this type of free speech activity that in any other circumstance would, again, be a trespassing charge. Like, for example, along with being pro-life and anti-death penalty and all the stuff that I believe in, I also am vegan and have been involved in animal rights activism, um, especially when I was in college, but still now I show up for the anti-circus um, rallies and stuff. But I... I would participate in an act of nonviolent civil disobedience where, for example, maybe we decide we need to shut down this McDonald's or this Whole Foods or this place that is um, distributing meat and people are buying meat or a butcher shop where they're actually killing the animals. Um, I know people who have been involved in nonviolent civil disobedience for animal rights reasons. And to be clear, if I did that, if I did exactly what I did um, on in October of 2020, but at this abortion clinic, 
at a McDonald's, I probably, first of all, wouldn't have been arrested at all. And even if I were arrested, it would have been a trespassing charge with likely either a slap on the wrist or a small fine. It is only at abortion clinics and also churches and pregnancy centers that this law applies to, and it's only ever being used to defend abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the kind of inconsistency that people really need to pay attention to, right? Especially when it's coming from the government. Like we talked about in a recent episode that we recorded that often morality of a people is determined by the way the law goes, right? Law is a a dictator of what is a perceived morality. Um, So paying attention to the inconsistencies that we see in situations like you described is so important. I just want to take a minute to discuss um, what you had talked about, you know, putting your body between oppressed and oppressor essentially, right? So Rita and I both are we love the work of Corey Ten Boom and um, what she did in World War II. And one story in particular that we've talked about a couple times is that she actually was searching for a place to um, hide a Jewish baby in the countryside so that it, it wouldn't get killed, right? And um, just how that was, the baby was visible, right? Is a real baby, um, but people still struggled with it. It was actually a pastor that struggled with Corey asking him to hide this baby because it was civil disobedience, right? And that was a visible baby. And like you said, the oppressed now, the babies inside the womb, they're invisible in a sense, right? And so it's really easy for people to, um, like in Canada, for example, even the conservative party has basically said, we will never again open up an abortion discussion. It's easy for them to say that, right? Because the oppressed are invisible. It's easier than opening up a political can of worms. So that was one thing that I just wanted to touch on that. And then this is a bit more of an emotional question. And if people listen to our podcast, they know that we don't really ask emotional questions too often on this podcast. But with this indictment and facing up to 11 years in prison, like how do you actually feel about that? Because that's that's a potentially big deal, Right. And that obviously has to come with some feelings. Yeah, no, it is definitely terrifying. Um, I'm a pretty young person mm-hmm. like that. That would be a significant um, amount of my life if I end up actually being sentenced to 11 years in prison. I also literally just got engaged. And so I know that my fiance would be really mad mm-hmm. if I um, ended up going to prison for that long or at mm-hmm. all. Um but ultimately, I think that I I don't dwell on it too much um, because I think it would drive me crazy if I did. But also, I I just recognize that regardless of what might happen to me, and that might be 11 years in prison, or who knows, maybe this will go to the Supreme Court and they'll overturn the FACE Act as unconstitutional. That would be best yeah. case scenario. Um But regardless of what happens to me, if it's a long time in prison or some other horrible fate, um, I just can't shake from my head that whatever it is, it is not going to be as bad as what they do to babies in those clinics. Um, Specifically, the the clinic that this happened at, um, people may have heard of this clinic because they're pretty notorious. It's the abortionist is a man named... uh, Cesare Santangelo in Washington, D.C. Um, and he has been caught on record, live action did an investigation into him multiple times. He's been caught on record saying that if a baby is born alive in his clinic, 
he will not fi- fo- uh, follow the federal laws regarding giving care to that infant born alive during an abortion. Um, and to be clear, that's relevant in this case because he specializes in post-viability abortions. Mm-hmm. Abortions so late in pregnancy that the children can survive outside of the womb, um, which is really extreme. Washington, D.C. Um, has no limit on abortion. The only limits they have are the few federal guidelines that ban things like partial birth abortion, where the, the child is born, uh, as makes it outside of the womb, and then the, the doctor um, either snips their neck or does some other thing to uh, end their life after they've literally been born. Um, that's what the abortionist Kermit Gosnell was famous for doing in Philadelphia. Um, and so this is like, if people want to treat abortion as this complicated issue and say, we don't know when life begins, um, I think they're wrong, and I want to roll my eyes at that. Uh, but I understand when we're talking about very early pregnancy, when the the unborn baby in question doesn't really look like a baby. But the babies that Dr. Santana, calling him doctor is, doesn't even make sense, but what this man um, does is against children who are so clearly fully formed. Um, just last March, it was about a year ago, um, activists discovered um, outside of his clinic, they were able to intercept a box that was going to the medical waste facility. um, And they told the the medical waste facility uh, truck driver, listen, we think there's dead babies in that box and we want to provide them with a burial. Um, And so those activists were uh, Lauren Handy and Teresa McCovenack, and they are like hardcore activists. Um, So most people I don't think would ask that question, but they, um, they spoke to the guy and he... Uh, was really affected. I'm sure he did not know that this was an abortion clinic. Like he shocked and he was like, babies, okay, yeah, take it. And they they took it. And what they found in that box, that just one large box contained 115 fetuses, um, human remains fetuses, including a couple that were sets of twins, um, and five of the children just in that box. And by the way, this guy was taking multiple boxes out of the clinic into the truck. The activists only got one box. Um, five of the unborn children that were discovered in that were far late um, gestational ages. Uh, and multiple doctors who reviewed the photographs of these children, um, they they said that it looks like at least three or four of them may have been killed illegally, mm-hmm. that he may have also not just been um, violating the obvious moral code of not dismembering live babies, um, but he may have actually been break, breaking the one law that basically governs what he does, which is the federal partial birth abortion ban. Um, but there has been little to no activity. Um, just to to tie up the, the end of that story, um, the 110 of the fetuses, um, they were all given, uh, one of the activists who found them is Catholic. Um, and so they gave, they gave all of the children a funeral mass and 110 of them, they buried um, in West Virginia, in a cemetery, um, thanks to the help of this priest that did the funeral mass and uh, organized the burial. Um, but then the five who were potentially um, killed illegally were handed over to the police um, in Washington, D.C. to do an investigation. And this has now been almost a year that they've had custody of the babies, and there has been no movement. Wow. Um, they've, they actually... Um, 
a while ago, the mayor of DC was questioned about what what will you do for these babies? The hashtag that sprung up around it was justice for the five, um, referring mm-hmm. to the, the five children. Um, and she was asked, what, what are they going to do about this? People were demanding justice for the five. And she said, we're this, I, I, it was a statement from her office actually that said, we're not investigating this any further. If there will be any investigation, it will be against the activist who stole, allegedly stole this medical waste box. Um, and it, it's just, and there hasn't been any charges related to that brought against either Teresa or Lauren yet. Uh, but it just, it was really horrific to see um, these activists, they, and it's like hard to even talk about because it really is so disturbing. Um, I recommend looking up the images if you think that you can stomach it. I know if you've had experience with miscarriage or later abortion, like I understand if you don't think you can handle it. But if you want to know what we're talking about, just Google justice for the five and their images will come up. These are like children that could be in a nursery. Like they are fully formed human beings. Um, and the the fact that the first time they were ever held by anyone who wasn't killing them or trying to harm them, it was like these activists who I'm so proud to work with um, and who immediately sprung into action to schedule a funeral and a burial and to document these crimes against humanity. Um, but so that's what we're talking about here. That is... That's the the abortionist who is who is upset with us for getting in the way of his business that day in October. Um, it, there's really just no justification for what what he does and what the government allows him to do to children for profit. Um, and so every time I think about it, it's like, yeah, it's horrifying to think that I could go to prison, but like. I am I am never going to be the victim in the context of abortion. Like there are children who are being murdered, dismembered, poisoned, killed, and then of course their parents who many of the times most of the time end up completely traumatized as a result of this um, because they were told over and over again that this is the only option for them. This is the only thing um, available by people who are supposedly pro-choice. And it's just, I try not to focus too much on it because ultimately like it, if one life is saved and we know that they are, right? Like we, I know people who exist today whose lives were saved because people did a uh, an abortion clinic rescue in the 90s and their mom was scheduled to have an abortion that day. Um, and we've spoken to people who at uh, Red Rose Rescues in the modern day have gone to a pregnancy center and ended up continuing the pregnancy. Um, and so to me, it's like if one person as a result of an action that we take gets to maybe live for 70, 80, 90 years, 11 years in prison feels kind of worth it. Like yeah. it it doesn't because that's horrible. And like, I don't really want to think about that. Um, but like, if you really asked me, would you go to prison for 10 years to ensure that this baby doesn't get killed? I would sigh and say yes. Um, and I think as a movement, that's what more of us should be doing. Um, and I recognize not everyone is able to go out and get arrested. Like if you're raising kids, if you have a bunch mm-hmm. of you know um, obligations, it makes sense that at, right now I'm not risking arrest in any case because of this, uh, of, of this case against me that I'll 
get in more trouble if I do. Um, but I, I think that in general, in social movements, there is not progress made unless people are willing to make major sacrifices. Um, and that is just, yeah. that's the history of all social justice movements. People need to make sacrifices to show how serious this is. This is not just another political issue that I might care about. Like, it's not on the same level as the national deficit. Like, people need to consider this as an issue that is real and impacting real people in your community that you need to do something more than just vote every four years for a Republican and hope he does something about it. Um, because it's not worked so far. Despite Roe v. Wade being overturned, there's still thousands of children being killed in abortion clinics in the U.S. every single day. Um, and yeah. so I just... Don't listen to me and think like, well, the only way to get involved then is to do uh, is to go risk arrest uh, because I recognize that that's not the case. But I guarantee that almost everyone listening could do something more for the unborn. Yeah, well, it's not always sacrifice of arrest. Sometimes it's just sacrificing your time or you know yeah. those kind of things, right? But I, I do think there's a lot that can be learned from you. One, you know, you did make a major sacrifice potentially. You know that you're under. Um, you know, you, you've been indicted, you might be facing legal ramifications, but we live in a society now um, that so many people uh, won't even risk their, like, they're just all for self-preservation. They won't even risk their image, you know, or somebody disliking them, let alone, you know, have potential legal implications. So I think there's a lot that can be learned from you on that standpoint. And then also just willingness to talk to people that you don't necessarily agree with too, because also people just are afraid of discussing with other people. So I think that there's a lot that can be learned from you there, but I want to back up for a second and just pull out the point you made about nothing happening to this quote doctor. And I know you referenced, he's hard to even call a doctor. I would agree with that, but nothing happening to him while well, this is all happening to you and the people that are uh, protesting abortion. And then also the uh, differences you pointed out or distinctions between if you would be protesting at a McDonald's or a circus versus an abortion clinic. And I just want to say, you know, people need to realize there's a reason behind that, right? Because it's politically convenient. It is politically convenient to um, use identity politics, right? And to use abortion because it's a very popular topic that people get on and people feel very passionately about. And so if it can advance in a party, a party agenda, and I will say like, there are people who believe in population control and all of those things. But I think that's a very small facet of people. Most of the people who are using abortion from a political stance as a person in government, you know, to further their platform, it's just identity politics. They don't necessarily believe on that, believe in that. And it's evidenced by the fact that they've evolved to this conclusion that abortion is okay very rapidly, you know, over the last couple of years, because like I said, it's politically convenient. So just keep that in mind as you think about why these, uh, why these hypocritical viewpoints on whether or not we're going to go after somebody for protesting, be it at a McDonald's or a abortion clinic. Let me tell you about our sponsor for today's episode. That is Lux and the Moon. What they say is they're bringing old school flair back to life through an online experience. 
And yes, that's true. They are doing that through an online experience, but they're also doing that through their clothing. Their clothes are not the typical things that you would find just on any rack anywhere. They are unique. They have a boho feel. Sometimes they have a vintage feel. I'm actually on their website right now and loving the dresses and the blouses that I'm looking at. Seriously, so adorable, so unique, something that you can feel good wearing no matter your stage of life or your body type. They really have a focus to make sure that you're feeling good in what you wear through all stages of life. This is a family owned business and they just do such an incredible job with their customer service, with sourcing their clothing. You guys are going to love Lux and the Moon. So check them out at luxandthemoon.com. Don't forget to enter the code BOOMCLAP to save on your order. Uh, we do want to ask you, like, how did you get to your views on abortion? How did you come to the conclusion that it's wrong? Um, have you always felt this way? Or did, did you just like one day realize, oh my gosh, this is a really bad thing that's happening? Yeah, I think that... Um well, so I, I'm involved in a lot of different, uh, you know, movements and go to a lot of different events. Um, and I always see, it, it feels like the leaders of all of these events now are like 17 year olds, like, especially like in the climate justice movement, but also in the anti-abortion movement, like the students for life students are like running the show half of the time at events. Um, and so I've, I'm like so impressed with young people who are politically active on like any, I mean, even like the pro abortion side, it's like teenagers who are like active. Um, and I am totally shocked by that because like when I, I feel like when I was a teenager, none of my friends talked about politics at all. Like I didn't really believe anything. Um, and so I didn't really question any political issue until I was like kind of later in high school, like a junior. Um, and we just had to take like the AP gov class, you know, and in that we sort of talked about, um, political issues. And so I had to develop most of my political opinions kind of for the first time. Um, and that was when I learned about a lot of the, the stuff that I now am passionate about. Like, I, I think the first issue that I ever kind of really cared about was, um, I was totally ignorant to um, the Iraq war and other wars in the Middle East. And so when I was in high school and kind of learning that I had to develop political opinions, I learned about those and was totally horrified and became like completely opposed to the war and anti-imperialist. And that's kind of how I started my political journey. Like that is the most important thing. Um, and through that, I sort of became involved somewhat, um, at least ideologically and online with the political left, um, because that was who was speaking out against that injustice. Um, and then as I was coming into my own political beliefs, I also like realized how horrific the death penalty was, um, and other, other issues that I cared about. Um, and I didn't really think about abortion, at all. And if you had asked me, I probably would have said like, I'm, I'm pro-choice. Like I, this was like the early, um, or like the mid, uh, 2010s. Right. And so like I had a Tumblr account. And so I probably would have called myself like a feminist because this was like the age of Buzzfeed feminism. Um, and so like, I would have just said I'm pro-choice cause I figured that was like the liberal human rights response. Um, and it wasn't until I actually, someone who I was uh, 
following on Tumblr, on social media, who I thought had all these good opinions and was cool. And like, they were LGBT. And I was like, this person's my friend. They shared something anti-abortion. And I was so shocked and like offended by it. I was like, I need to argue with this woman about why she is anti-abortion because she's wrong and I know more than her. Um, And so I, I needed to do research for the first time. And I distinctly remember looking into abortion and I, because at this time I was basically pro-choice, I started on Planned Parenthood's website and pro-abortion blogs and sources. And I just got this sinking feeling, feeling in my stomach. Like it kind of sounds like what we're talking about here is like just talking around the fact that abortion kills a baby. And I didn't want that to be true. That didn't feel right to me based on everything else I believed. Um, But as I was doing more research, I was like, it doesn't even feel like they're denying it at many points when you really look into like how abortions are performed, what, you know, the embryo looks like at different stages. Um, And so I forced myself to look at the more neutral sources. I was looking at simply biology textbooks and learning about embryology. And I really realized at that point, like there is no meaningful distinction between a human being at, you know, six weeks post-conception or six weeks post-birth. Like they, we are always human beings from the moment we come into existence. And it really is only in order to justify abortion that people try to come up with other benchmarks Mm -hmm. or standards for what makes us a person. Um, When I feel like all of these other things that I wanted to cling to, like, well, they're not sentient or they're um, not fully formed. They're, you know, their brainstem doesn't form until this week. And so maybe that's when they matter. Um, It just, it struck me as like incredibly ableist. Like I I cared about disability rights. I had disabled friends. Um, And when I heard people try to justify abortion, with these arguments, like I was like, okay, but that, that means that it should be all right to murder either toddlers or newborn infants or people with intellectual disabilities or other sort of, um, you know, various things that causes people to say that the unborn are not human. Um, and it didn't make any sense to me. And so I sort of became like reluctantly pro-life and realized that this was something that I was in the minority opinion of among all of my friends. Um, And I realized also quickly that this wasn't really something that you were allowed to disagree on. Like, this is something that we are all on the same side of. And if you disagree, you're a fascist. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a while, like, especially in high school, where I was just kind of quiet about my beliefs. Like, I was like, I believe that, but I I sort of believed it in, in the same way that I believed about any other political issue that I wasn't that passionate about. Like, if you pulled me, I would have said pro-life, but it's not, it's not going to affect how I vote. It's not going to affect like any activism. Like, I'm just going to think that, think that it's going to, I think it's bad to kill babies, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, but then I, I grew up, um, right outside of Philadelphia. And so the, um, one of the abortion clinics that was closest to me where any of my friends would have gone, um, was Kermit Gosnell's clinic. Um, and he, he now is in prison, but um, he he was an abortionist who was exposed for, similar to Santangelo, murdering babies way past the point of viability. Um, and Gosnell is also now in prison for killing women as well in botched abortions and having really horrific mm-hmm. um, 
just uh, also look that up. Look up the Kermit Gosnell case because you can read like some of the trial transcripts and it is so horrible. You People find out like how he treated the patients. He, he, he was actually a black doctor and he had separate waiting rooms, one for white women who would come in and then a separate waiting room for black women. And um, a lot of his patients were immigrant women who didn't speak English. And there was a nicer waiting room for the white women than everyone else. And the the waiting room and the other like circumstances, how he treated women of color and immigrants um, was t- totally horrific. He used rusty instruments. Um, and it, that was a, a total case of the uh, Pennsylvania uh, health department actively choosing not to do any investigations. Uh, women who he harmed, like perforated their uterus or gave them sepsis or any other problem, they would show up in emergency rooms and multiple different emergency room hospitals and individual doctors and just patients who he harmed um, reached out to the health department and were like reporting him over and over again. But the health department kept making the decision that because it was a political issue, they wow. didn't want to get involved. And so he was able to just continue for years unabated. It actually wasn't until he got caught for a totally separate crime. He was using um, his prescription card um, and allowing nurses to uh, dispense like opioids, I think. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a DEA case that eventually um, brought him in that... That that people came to storm the clinic to, or police came to storm the clinic to find evidence of that crime, the you know inappropriately dispensing opioids for profit, um, and they got there and they found full term fetuses sitting out in jars, and they were like, "This isn't what we're here for," but this seems like it's also illegal, and so finally an investigation had to take place into Gosnell's um, clinic. But anyway, I I grew up very close to that clinic. Um, and so that that case was kind of going on and being litigated as I was becoming pro-life. Um, and I allowed myself to kind of be silently pro-life because it didn't feel like an issue that was close to me. Um, but as I was like a senior in high school, that case was wrapping up and he was getting sentenced to jail. And it made me realize how serious this issue is. You can look up uh, pictures of some of his victims. Um, Baby Boy A is a famous example of a child who was similar to, um, again, Santangelo's victims, like a fully formed infant. Like I, you could pose that baby in a way that I would assume that they are living um, and just a regular small child. Um, But I, I sort of realized that this wasn't just another political issue. Like this is impacting real people in my community. And any of those people could have been me or my friends going to see this doctor. And it made me realize that like, this isn't just something that we can have a difference of opinion on. Um, this is like a historical scale mass injustice that needs to be the focus of a wider social movement to end this violence. Yeah. It's interesting that you started with research because uh, I think that's very rare. <laughs> I think that, you know, you saying that you started at Planned Parenthood and then you moved to looking at, you know, medical journals and anatomy books and all of these things. Like, that's just very interesting because I don't think people do that much anymore. And I'm just thinking about other issues that are going on in the world and things that I've like kind of taken on around in our area. You mentioned climate, you know, the climate agenda a little bit ago. And I just, this isn't a question I'm posing. I just want to throw this out here because there's a lot of issues going on that, like you said, 
you disagree, people call you a fascist, but they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. They may not have researched it as thoroughly. And so I would just pose, let's research all of these issues that we say we're passionate about before we get too passionate about them, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we may be passionate about something because we've been told to be by the powers that be, but we don't actually even know what we're talking about. And so you took the time. Yes, passionately wrong. Good way of putting it. But you took the time to get educated and I can appreciate that. Um, And I I just want to ask too. So I had originally, you know, thought I would pose this question to you that I'm not sure if you personally claim the title of liberal, but I think you do after this conversation. I mean, I think you do potentially, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, but do you get any major pushback claiming a title, you know, like, or being liberal in your viewpoints and then, um, you know, pushing back against something that so many Democrats hang their hat on? Like they will, you know, use abortion to the full extent to, I mean, that, that abortion was a major topic in the last election cycle, right? and use to its full extent. And so do you get pushback from that? And I'm just thinking about like, you know, the black community and any um, person that's more conservative who is black will get called like Uncle Tom, you know? So do you get any kind of pushback for disagreeing with a huge talking point from a liberal standpoint? Yeah, constantly. Um, And in terms of how I identify, I don't normally, I usually don't, choose any label. I just let people listen to what I have to say and come up with a label. Right. Well, that's what originally I'm like, I really don't like putting people in boxes because I feel like it makes you feel like you have to check off every, like I had sent Cecily a picture from a church a few weeks ago and it was a church, um, in West Lafayette, we had went to a Purdue game and they literally had the, this banner outside and it was every democratic political issue, like outside their church but there wasn't anything about Jesus. And so I'm like, that's a little confusing to me if you're a church that you're going to promote all these things. And it's also just funny to me that you check every single box. Like you really do believe in every single one of these issues. It's just odd to me that we put ourselves in these camps and we believe in every single one of the issues. It just shows that there's very uh, little critical thinking going on. If we, we have two sides that wholeheartedly believe in every single issue on whichever side you're on very weird, right? Yeah. And I also think that, so the, the stuff that I care about are all of those things that I mentioned at the beginning, the, the work that I actually do as an activist, um, are about these issues of violence against human beings, state-sponsored violence against human beings. And I don't really do much out, much outside of that. Like I, like I mentioned, I've been to a couple animal rights things. Um, and I, I still believe in that. Um, but like, as, as far as politically, what we're talking about are opposing issues of aggressive violence. And I really do not believe that any of the stances that I take are necessarily liberal or conservative. But I find that whatever side of the aisle the listener is on, they often like assign me to the other side. Like when I talk to conservatives in the anti-abortion movement, because I am opposed to, you know, police brutality and the death penalty and war, they see me as like, okay, you're one of the liberal pro-lifers then. And I'm like, I guess, um, but among all of my friends who I work with on other issues, I am the conservative (laughs) because I am against abortion and war. And I, you know, end up working with 
all of these conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel it, it's this funny thing. And I say that to um, to people who I work with on other issues. Like I work a lot with um, the Abolitionist Act- Action Committee and Death Penalty Action. Um, and they intentionally bring me in. They'll have me speak at an event because they know because of my background in the pro-life movement, I can reach conservatives in a way that they can't because they're all a bunch of Democrats. Um, and so for them, I'm like the token conservative <laughs> anti-death penalty or anti-war person. Um, and then in in anti-abortion spaces, I'm like the liberal. And so I you could you could call me whatever you want. Um, I I think that most I think that it is odd when people just affirm everything mm-hmm. that either the Democratic or the Republican totally. Party stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's often just a result of like wanting to feel like you're totally like in on the team. Um, and so people don't question the beliefs that, um, that they hold or they claim to hold, um, because they're just like, and I, and I think it makes sense. Like, I think that if I, if I didn't ever question abortion, um, I would sit pretty firmly within the democratic party on these social issues that I care about, um, and so I could see myself never questioning it and just allowing myself to um, to remain comfortably a Democrat um, because it is a little difficult. Like people are really mean to you. I specifically I remember um, right after the Dobbs decision was leaked, I was in Washington D.C. Um, and we were outside of the Supreme Court every day for like weeks demonstrating because we we realized that. There was a whole bunch of media there covering abortion. And every day there was like 600 pro-choice people there and maybe like eight pro-life people. And so we realized like we need to be there to represent on this issue, like just for the entire pro-life movement, because the media narrative right now is like, look at all of these people so upset about the right to abortion being taken away. When we know the reality is that millions of Americans were working and praying and fighting for this exactly to happen. Um, but when we were out there, like it's it's so obvious what science got people angry, angrier. Like we had we had people there with the normal, just like stop abortion now, uh, or students for life, or national right to life signs, and you know, pro abortion people were mad at them for being there. Um, but the signs that really triggered like an extreme, hostile, often violent response were the signs that said things like liberal atheist against abortion. Um, mm-hmm. My fiance had signed that said uh, queer atheist against abortion. And like that one, people just will physically attack you because they're so upset that you are actually challenging their like a traitor. because it's easy for them. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's happened to me before where I have been at events and literally just a few weeks ago, I did a, a there was a rally in Pittsburgh and we had counter protesters who came to scream at us because they were pro-abortion. And I had people screaming in my face that I was a Christian fundamentalist. And I held up my sign saying like atheist against abortion or pro-life atheist or whatever. And I said, you know, that's not true. Like I took the megaphone down. I was like, you know, that's not true. Why do you keep saying it? And he was like, and then, and then kept saying it over and over again. He called specifically me and my fiance, um, Christian fundamentalist. And it's like, maybe you can get away with calling us like, fascist. Like I certainly wouldn't consider myself a fascist, but at least that's like, 
maybe we could disagree that my that being anti-abortion is or isn't fascist. But like he was completely unwilling to even consider that the talking points that had been drilled into his head already that anti-abortion people were exclusively, you know, Christian, right-wing, um, fundamentalist, that he just kept repeating that lie over and over again, that like, I am a Christian fundamentalist. Not that there's anything that wrong with being a Christian fundamentalist. It's just, that's not what I am. <laughs> I, I come up with something more specific. Um, and so it, 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 it's difficult. I also know that when I was in college, it made it like, I was active in the Students for Life Club at my university, um, and it made it a little difficult to make friends. You know, if I wanted to be involved in other groups um, or other movements that I would have been interested in, I definitely felt a little alienated and like I didn't have a place. And then the same thing would almost happen to me when I would go to the pro-life club. And before I took over, it was like all... It was it was basically just the Catholic club. It was all Catholics who all agreed on everything. Um and it wasn't until I got involved then we actually did a bunch of research with like the secular student, or not research, uh, we did events with the Secular Student Society and other outside groups that the the club itself became more diverse and it finally became a space where I was like, okay, I'm not the only one who has these beliefs. Um, and it made it a little bit more bearable. And now I ended up joining the movement full-time as an adult after graduation. And like the same thing happens if I want to get involved in... Um, you know, various organizing spaces. It's like, I know that being anti-abortion may cause people to ask me to leave or to not be involved or I'm not going to get invited to things. Yeah. Very tribalistic, right? Like we want people to be all in or all out. And it even sounds like with you, people either want you on their team or don't want you on their team based on whether it helps their particular cause of the moment, right? So it's just really interesting how humans work. Yeah. All right, Herb, we have kept you for over an hour now. So um, I won't get into this too much, but we have talked about MAID in the past on here, which is the medical assistance in dying, uh, the nicer way of saying assisted suicide in Canada. Um, We have gotten into that because it's a big deal there and they're opening it up for basically anyone who has mental health issues um, and... (laughs) Even, what'd you say, Cecily? Poverty. Yes, poverty yeah. and even children. So it's it's getting to be a big, big issue there. And we've quoted the st- statistics before and it's a substantial amount of people. I think it was like 4% of, or something. In my province, last year. it was like between four and six, I think, or like four to 4.6 okay. or something. Of, yeah. of deaths. Mm-hmm. Of all deaths. Of deaths were medically assisted su- suicides. So that's a huge percentage of people. So- I know this is an issue for you as well that you talk about on your, um, you know, on your platform. So can you just tell us like, where is America on this issue? Because I do feel that everything's progressing here in a similar fashion. So can you just give us a brief rundown of where America is on this issue as well? Yeah. um, So we've been keeping a close eye on the situation in Canada, um, which has just been so disturbing how quickly it mm-hmm. expanded. Um, and it's, it, to be clear, assisted suicide euthanasia made, they're also horrific when it actually just is elderly people with disabilities who are yeah. who are being killed. Like it is, it is also wrong to kill people um, for what people like to consider to be the more reasonable cases of euthanasia. 
Um, but definitely the, the fact that it expanded so quickly is really scary. Um, and it's something that we're worried about here in the U.S. because we we do, um, thankfully, there's a Supreme Court case on the books that says that um, there at least is not a constitutional right to euthanasia. Um, however, that still opens it up for states to just decide on their own if they're going to allow assisted suicide. Um, and so it's it's a totally state-by-state state battle, which makes it difficult because it's hard to track exactly how far different movements are in states. Luckily, there's hardly any movement at all. There's almost never bills introduced here in Pennsylvania for it. Um, but I know other states, it is, it is a real battle. And the states that do have options for assisted suicide, um, like New Mexico and California, that similar to Canada, they're always trying to expand it further. Um, so in the United States, really, you still can only um, seek assisted suicide if you have a certain disability or a terminal illness. Um, and it's primarily reserved for um, the elderly as well. Uh, but I don't think there's any reason to assume that the United States isn't going towards the direction of Canada. I think that people need to really pay attention to this issue um, and be proactive about it because we don't want what happened um, in the 1970s with the abortion issue in the United mm -hmm. States when there was just a Supreme Court decision that le legalized it everywhere for everyone and now you all need to fight against this. Um, because before 1973, there were a couple of anti-abortion organizations. There were some people doing some work to serve pregnant women and to make a difference on this issue and to keep it illegal. Um, but there wasn't a movement in the same way there is now. It only really popped up as a result of Roe v. Wade. Um, and so we don't want something like that to happen in the United States where we let it get away from us and then there's a successful push that we haven't organized for. And so we try to coalition build as much as possible, both with pro-life organizations, but also even more um, effectively, I think that we've partnered with disability rights organizations to talk about this issue and to present um, the anti-assisted suicide view to legislatures and the general public. Um, and we found that that is the most effective messaging um, when we're working with the people who are actually most impacted or going to be most impacted by it. Um, and here at Rehumanize International, uh, we're very lucky that uh, we were actually founded by a woman um, who is disabled and our current president is uh she actually was diagnosed in the womb as incompatible with life. Mm -hmm. um, and her her parents were pressured into having an abortion. Her mother uh, refused and, and kept saying, There's only, she's only going to um, live very shortly after birth. And then they were like, well, she's not going to live to a teenager. And she just celebrated her 30th birthday oh. the other, a couple of months ago. And so she, and she is profoundly disabled. She's blind. She uses a wheelchair. She is on a ventilator. She, um, she has a lot of different doctor's appointments and surgeries constantly because she's a disabled woman and she has issues as a result of various chronic conditions that she has. Um, but she also has a master's and is intelligent and serves on the board of multiple human rights organizations. Um, and I've been really grateful to get to work with her because she's spoken out a lot about how as someone with a life-limiting condition, her um, her diagnosis is, is terminal and kind of has been terminal her whole life, um, that if she was somewhere where assisted suicide was legal, she would be a prime candidate for it. Um, and because she 
understands her own value and believes in the right to life. She, I think, has been an excellent advocate against this issue um, and really teaching us how to... Her name is Beth Fox, by the way. I should have said that. Um, But teaching us how to talk about assisted suicide in a way that really highlights the stakes here because it's the reality of assisted suicide. And I I think most people who are pro-life know this, but um, a lot of people, they just don't think about this issue or they think that there is some sort of element of mercy, which there certainly is. People support assisted suicide because they believe it is the peaceful solution um, to these problems. But when you really think about it, what assisted suicide legalization does is that in societies where um, assisted suicide is legal, if I, who is a generally physically healthy 26-year-old, walks into a doctor's office and tells them, I want to kill myself, that they are going to do whatever it is in their power to prevent that. I'm going to get healthcare for suicide prevention. Um, There's going to be plenty of resources to give to me. However, if I go in and I am the exact same person, but I have some sort of serious illness or disability, then I am offered suicide assistance. Um, And it's just, it's completely horrific and is only a result of society's willingness to devalue people who um, have different disabilities or illnesses um, that typically the the reasoning are things like feeling like a burden on others, um, being a financial burden, especially um, in Canada, we have this horrific issue of, well, with socialized healthcare, it saves the state money to euthanize yeah. rather than treat someone for many years. In the US, we have the opposite problem where, well, it's a hell of a lot cheaper for the insurance companies not to mm-hmm. treat this person. We've had cases of insurance companies saying the assisted suicide drugs will cover, but this treatment for cancer, we won't. Um, and so it's it, it's a potential to take hold in any community and any kind of financial system because it's based on this idea of mercy and bodily autonomy. But the reality is just a horrific two-tiered system where some people, like most people believe if someone's suicidal, you should help them. Yeah. You, sh- you should help them feel better and give them the resources mm-hmm. they need. You shouldn't help them end their right. lives. That's not real help. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really the same as how people are led to believe that abortion is the right thing, right? It's all this cultural messaging. Yeah. And it's such a good point. Um, you know, when people are depressed, what we should be doing is coming alongside them and trying to help them, trying to help them see their own value. But by saying you're depressed, you know what, you would be better off um, just getting some help with suicide. What does that tell them about their value, right? It tells them they're they're not worth the fight and it's just a lie, right? So, yeah. 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 And then as, as Canada is working to expand assisted suicide for people with just mental mm-hmm. health, conditions. I mean, it opens up really scary ideas about what we know about suicide contagion. We know that when people kill themselves, especially how we talk about it after, can lead to others doing it. And so the state normalizing it, especially just for someone with a mental illness, is how how could anyone ever be honest with a doctor that they might be facing suicidal ideation if they... If, if they reasonably believe that the doctor is going to say, okay, let's go ahead and end your life. Um, I mean, it's just, it's it's really concerning. I also, I when I talk to like fellow liberals, especially um, like 
young people who are very LGBT affirming, I always point to the insanely high suicide Mm -hmm. and suicidal ideation statistics for LGBT children and teenagers and trans people throughout their lives. And I point to those statistics and I'm like, so you know that people in our community disproportionately consider suicide. And why are you therefore comfortable with building a world where simply being suicidal is enough to have a doctor help you end your life? Like what, to to me, that almost sounds like it's, it should be seen as like this fascist right-wing opinion, mm-hmm. but for some reason, it's kind of liberal Democrats yeah. who are, are pushing it. And it, it is totally mind-blowing to me that it, it can be normalized in any culture. Oh, absolutely. It really brings to mind that early 20th century eugenicist movement, right? And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's just amazing how it's become very mainstream. It's become extremely mainstream and people don't even realize what they're talking about when they're talking about these issues, because these have become culturally accepted ideas rather than being seen for the extreme radical anti-human things that they are. So, yeah. So here we are, Herb, an hour and 15 minutes in, and we didn't even get to all the questions. No, don't. This was such a fantastic conversation. I feel like you're the kind of person that we could have on again. And First of all, finish off the list of questions that we had for you and then and then some. So this was a really valuable conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This yeah, was fun. it was. Now, is there, I don't know, I, I tried searching you on Instagram and I see that maybe you have like, a, it's not a private account, right? But I don't know if that's where you yeah, would direct people. Where would account. you direct people? I would direct people to Rehumanize International mm-hmm. Social Media. Um, that's just at Rehumanize, I-N-T-L, R-E-H-U-M-A-N-I-Z-E-I-N-T-L. Um, that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want, you can also find me on TikTok or on um, Instagram mm-hmm. and Twitter, just at Herb Garrity, my first and last name. Okay. Um, but I don't post a whole lot of uh, activism stuff on my yeah. on my Instagram, at least. It's mostly like pictures of vegan things <laughs> yeah. that I've made. Yeah. So I, I invite you to follow me for that okay. reason, but don't expect it profound from my Instagram. Though I do uh, tweet about politics and stuff on my okay. Twitter, so you can find me oh, there. Oh, that's so awesome. Okay, well, we will let you go and hopefully talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Okay, we kept Herb for a long time, but it was worth every single moment. Loved having that conversation with him. Super thankful that he was willing to um, have a conversation with us when there's probably things we talk about on this podcast that he wouldn't be able to get behind. Um, But I love his openness and his willingness. That's what the world needs more of. I really hope that you guys were able to draw a lot from this conversation as well. I hope it's something that as you have conversations about life and the importance of life and um, think about and talk about the issue of abortion, I really hope that this has left you feeling more equipped for that. As always, if you want to find us outside the podcast, don't forget to check out the boomclopcommunity.com. You can also find us on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at cecily.dickey or on my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find Rita on Instagram at Rita Rogers Co. or on her website, RitaRogersCo.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.